You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, this is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. It's uh, July the 11th. We got one of us back in the office after the 4th of July week, and, and Greg will be back in the next week or so. But um, I want to start this particular recording off with something that's super interesting to me, especially in light of all of the negative. We're going to talk about some negative stuff for sure today, but I want to start with something positive. Markets over the last 12 months through the end of June, uh, the S&P 500 is down 10.66% year over year. So July 1st, 2021 to June 30th, 2022. However, this is a, a note issued by uh, somebody we follow closely, Charlie Bolello, who notes that S&P 500 dividends per share, so not price movement, but dividends per share, hit another new high in the second quarter, up 14% year over year over the same period we just mentioned, that the market is off 10.6%. Dividends are up 14%, highest growth rate since 2015. Greg, just initial reaction as we think about the dividends increase per share versus the price decrease per share. Well, so the difficult thing about being a stock investor versus a real estate investor, for example, is a stock investor has to see the price of his or her portfolio or and assets moving up and down each day. And in the case of a stock portfolio over the last 12 months, that, that value has gone down 10%, like you just said. A real estate investor, on the other hand, probably has experienced similar type of price action, but they haven't been shown a statement or they can't go on their Fidelity app or Schwab app or whatever and see the price of their real estate down each day. But if you were a, a real estate investor and you, even though the value of your property was down, you probably didn't know it. If your rents were up 14% over the last 12 months, you wouldn't really care about what the actual value of the property was. The same thing should apply to stock-based investing in the case of dividends appreciating by 14%. Even though the value has fluctuated over and fluctuated negatively over the last 12 months, your rents or your dividends are up 14%. That whole dichotomy is interesting. And that's why I've heard in the case of real estate investing versus stock investing, that that's truly real estate investing is generational type of money because it's so difficult for people to hold on to stocks over these periods of time, even though the, the sort of fundamentals in terms of increasing dividends are a really positive thing, even though the valuation is down over that period of time. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It also just confirms a lot of what we've been hearing from business owners over the last several months that you know, I was in a meeting uh, in Texas a couple of weeks ago, and we managed the pension plan for a, a company out there. And just generally asked how business is going. And they said, well, we're having our best year ever. We thought 2021 was our best year and 2022 is going to be our best year. And so businesses are in great shape. You see it just anecdotally through a conversation like that. Or if you look at just dividend growth over the last 12 months, the reason dividends are up 14% is because operating income is growing. And so they're sharing more of that those profits with shareholders. Now, what the, what the market does is it looks, it's forward-looking. Dividends are more retrospective. Uh, here's how we did last quarter or the quarter before. And so here's our dividends per share. Markets discount the future. And maybe there's an expectation of some decline in economic growth or you know 
increase in interest rates, so decline in value of the stock because of that relationship. But yeah, as you said, real estate investors don't really think about that. Obviously, you're always thinking about your assets, but if you're raising your rents by 14% per year and increasing your cash flow, why would you ever want to sell that piece of property? Uh, and we, we try to communicate that similarly to clients of ours as, as investors in companies, specifically dividend-paying companies that increase their dividends year over year. If you're collecting a dollar a share in dividends and this year and next year it's a dollar fourteen uh, per share, that's something you want to hold on to uh, regardless of the economic environment that you're in. All things equal, I mean, something could be going on with that company that could cause you to want to sell. But in essence, if you buy in great companies that have pricing power and are able to pass through increased costs to their, their customers and then increase the dividends paid to you, uh, that's something that treat that like a piece of property and, and collect your rents and increased rents year over year. So that's a, a positive is that at least corporate America is in good shape. They're, who knows about the future, but we're big focusers on dividend growth investing and like to see that dividends are increasing despite you know, volatile markets. Did you see the news today from Redfin, Doug? No, what is it? So Redfin, according to Redfin, roughly 60,000 home purchase agreements fell through in June equal to 14.9% of homes that went under contract that month. And this is the highest rate of home sales cancellations since the start of the pandemic. So that's a, so we started with a little positive. That's some concerning or negative news. Do you have any opinion on that? And do you have any sort of prognostication about whether or not we're in a recession? What do you think? So I think the former question first, I think I don't see any reason why that would be surprising that there's increased home cancellations. Now, you have to dive into the data as to for each one of these cancellations, what's the fee to cancel? It's probably a minimal deposit that people put down. Uh, and when they put the deposit down months ago, mortgage rates were at three, three and a half percent. Now they're at five to six percent. You know, people are looking at that that home and saying, number one, I can't afford any more the monthly note, maybe. Uh, or number two, yeah, the price that I was agreeing to pay for that property is probably no longer uh, valid just in light of you know the increased cost to uh, service the debt along with that home. So it's not surprising to me. Does it mean, I think we talked about this last week, uh, that people are looking for the next recession in housing just because that's when the last recession, if you don't count 2020 as a recession, the last recession was housing driven. So that's where the, a lot of the focus is. I don't think there's anything recession oriented associated with that. I think it's logical that people would be canceling uh, and for, forfeiting deposits, especially if they're s small deposits in light of the major increase in, in mortgage rates. I think that's totally true. And the other thing too, is that a lot of these commodity related price increases have occurred as a result of the housing boom. And I think that part of the Fed's objective is to try to slow down the rate of price increases. And, and if you look at the price of lumber, price of copper, et cetera, all those have come off their peaks. And so maybe what is the consequence of Fed rate, the Fed raising rates is that mortgage rates went up, but also inflation seems to be cooling off a little bit. I think that there's certainly, it'll be interesting to see whether or not we have a recession. I saw recently that Goldman Sachs pegs the probability at like 30% over the next 12 months and 50% probability of a recession in the United States over the next 24 months. And that was as a result of their most recent research piece. I certainly think that there's sentiment right now is quite negative. And 
I saw that the search term for recession and inflation were both at you know, significant, basically at their peaks in terms of Google search uh, data. Where's the Fed funds rate right now? It's like, what, 1.75? 1.75, yeah. Yeah, so the, the Federal Reserve hasn't even raised rates significantly at all, and we're getting all of this, number one, recession, fear, number two, doubling in mortgage rates over the last six months, you know, fears about quantitative tightening, which just started 30 days ago that the Federal Reserve is actually letting some of these maturing bonds roll off their balance sheet. Nothing's really happened. Right. And so we've got all of this data that is you know, coming out related to topping effects in commodity prices specifically and you know, increase in cost of debt. How much of that is just telegraphed versus actual negative implication of central bank policy? I think it's a what, what I've, I've read people call it is it's a recession in vibes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I think that's totally, I mean, and I think that's completely manufactured too. I think the the Federal Reserve, what they're trying to do is, is signal that they're going to be aggressive if they have to be, but haven't been aggressive yet. And now they went from 50 basis points to 75 basis point hike in June because of bad inflation data and the expectations they'll do another 75 basis point hike this next session. But to me, it's, you know, they, they don't want to hike unless they have to. And they're trying to say, if things don't come down, we will hike. But I think a lot of it is telegraphed. I don't, I, I don't think they're going to be able to hit their targets that they've been telegraphing because I don't think the economy sus- can sustain it. I think if they're able to at least stoke fear into the system, then they're accomplishing their objective. I, I think that's a really, really good observation. I think that that's what they're get that that's what they're accomplishing right now as we speak. And and so the the market right now prices in the seventy five basis point hike, additional seventy five basis point hike in July, uh, and then a, a fifty basis point hike in September, and then basically starting to cool down. But then the market expects that there's going to be some rate cuts in twenty twenty three essentially. So uh, according to J P Morgan. So the, the, the Fed basically looks at historical data and makes its decision. JP Morgan has the, has the ability to look at the actual market for inflation data. And that's what the, what, that's what the Fed is looking at, but they're looking at hard actual economic data when it's making its decisions. JP Morgan provided a report that states that the markets now imply that headline inflation peaked in June and will soften sharply over the next year. I tend to agree with that assessment, and that's what the markets that's what the markets are stating. I think that part this sort of recession in vibes, which is what the the Fed is trying to accomplish in insert, injecting negativity to try to bring down inflation. I'm starting to see that in, in consumer behavior to a degree. I mean, I still I still see restaurants and bars and airplanes, et cetera, full. But I think that people are going to pare back their spending, and that's going to that's obviously seen in the in the the residential real estate space right now. But I think that's probably going to be the path that, that things go down in the next three to six months. Whether there's a recession or not, it seems like the best place to be is in the U.S. markets currently. And we're actually seeing that in, in currency movements. Uh, one thing you and I talked about months and months ago was uh, we had a client that was looking for you know, a piece of real estate in coastal U.S. and you know, markets were insane specifically in California. And so uh, we were talking about, well, well, let's take a look at a comparative piece of real estate in 
France or Italy or something like that. That's coastal. It's beautiful. It's in a idyllic town somewhere in the you know French or Italian Riviera. And it seemed like prices over there were much cheaper on a relative basis to prices in the US. And a lot of that was driven because the euro was getting close to parity. I think it was you know $1 at the time was like a, a euro eight or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or vice versa, one euro was a dollar eight. Now, well, this is July the 11th. I'm looking at the chart right now. One dollar buys you one euro exactly. Pretty amazing. Down from one dollar and 22 cents, May 1st, 2021, a year ago, one dollar 22 cents bought you one euro, a major decline in, in uh, the value of the European currency. Uh, compared to the U.S. dollar, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, the actual peak of euro—it used to be a dollar thirty-eight. That was the actual peak from that you a dollar thirty-eight would buy you one euro. Was that two thousand eight or something? Yeah, exactly. That happened to be like when we were studying abroad in Spain. I remember, <laughs> it was ridiculously expensive, essentially. And with the actual time, I think the euro came into existence was the late nineties, and it was like a dollar and two cents bought you a euro back then. And so we're basic, we've basically come full circle over the last 24 years. And there's a possibility, and I think a decent possibility, that the euro trades at a discount to the dollar right now. It's at parity. So I think it's really fascinating how, how cheap the euro has gotten and what the, opportunity, the opportunities that that potentially provides to people that are in the market for buying European assets with U.S. dollars. Or traveling. Or traveling. I mean, it's, it's like... Uh, all of a sudden, your your trip to Europe is relative to to the peak is thirty or forty percent less expensive just from a currency exchange standpoint. Um, I mean, I've just anecdotally I've seen so many people in Europe, by the way, on social media. I think it's just pent up demand, but it's it really is fascinating. And and I I'm a big I, I'm a big Francophile, Italophile, etc. I, I love cultural and Spanophile, etc. I love the cultural and geographic and language, et cetera, everything that the Euro- these European countries offer. And it seems to me it's like it's a huge value for from a travel and um, potential uh, investment standpoint. I know it's all relative to, to the uncertainty that exists over there, the energy conflicts that Europe is having with Russia. I mean, if, if you look at Germany, for example, from an investment standpoint, I thought this was fascinating. I saw that the market cap of Germany, at one point, global market cap of Germany in 2008, for example, Germany represented about 4%, between 4 and 5% of the the global market cap of, all, of equities in, in the world. Now, Germany is only 1.9% of the, the globe's equity market cap. I mean, it just seems to me how it's, it's crazy how things have changed over there. And it seems to me that they've made some, some really poor policy decisions they were guided by, you know, false narratives like the idea of getting cleaner in energy. They shut Germany for in specific shut down all of its nuclear power plants, which are like that provide the sort of cleanest energy of them, you know, assuming that they avoid any sort of major disaster. And they exchange those for gas powered power plants. And now their, their major supplier is obviously threatening to withhold gas supplies. It's so there's a lot of uh, un intended consequences of policy decisions that sounded good in theory, but actually really weren't that, you know, well, well guided or well founded. 
Yeah, one of those is occurring in in Sri Lanka right now. I mean, that's the, I think that's probably the most fascinating story that's going on on planet Earth right now is this this crisis in Sri Lanka, all driven by I think this was two or three years ago a policy decision. So Sri Lanka was one of the largest producers of rice, right? Is that correct in the mm-hmm. in the world in 2019 or maybe early 2020? The uh, government of Sri Lanka attempted to put in place a ban. I don't think they attempted. They actually did put in place a ban on any non-organic farming methods. So, you know, ban on fertilizer or pesticides or et cetera. That wasn't in practice of, you know, sort of an organic farming. Now, Sri Lanka is in a a, basically a food crisis, uh, even though the price of rice has gone up dramatically uh, with inflation in the last couple of years simply do because their yields on crop are down, what, 20 to 30% mm-hmm. because of the, the farming practices that have been in, instituted and required by the government. The Sri Lankan people surrounded the palace. There's a million people that went to the presidential palace. There was people swimming, as you saw, the, all the protesters swimming in the pool at, at oh, the no, it's, <laughs> um, But it's, it's, a, it's amazing that once these narratives take hold, whether it's going green in Germany by eliminating German use of nuclear energy and also the total eliminating of fossil fuels in Germany, but then importing all of that from Russia. So you're not really doing anything on a net basis that's positive. They're, you're just optically doing something that's positive. Uh, you know What's going on in Europe now in terms of that energy crisis to the food crisis in the emerging world and specifically in Sri Lanka all for the benefit of uh, you know the ESG narrative that basically the attempt there is to reduce your cost of capital by getting dollars from people that are investors for I mean, whether they're green investors or impact investors or whatever. Uh, this is uh, this is the unintended consequences of, of those actions. <laughs> I know uh, it's it's crazy to me. And then in preparation for this this call, I read this this fascinating article about the sort of myths of organic farming that was produced by the Hoover Institute. And we'll post, post it in the show notes. But the whole idea behind organic farming is there's very little. Organic farming still uses pesticides, but they're natural pesticides and doesn't necessarily mean that they're less toxic than the synthetic ones. Organic farming, it's like 80% or 90% of the crops that are produced by or, organic farming methods are less efficient than the modern farming techniques. So it's way more, produces way more greenhouse energy or greenhouse gases when you do organic farming. So it's it's all these narratives that sound good in theory, but if you actually look at the data behind it, it's there's a lot more to it than than just you might see from a marketing standpoint. And there's actual real world consequences associated with that. Same thing goes with like uh, the El Salvadorian Bitcoin guy that was buying, he was, he got into, he bought into the narrative of Bitcoin. The president of El Salvador changed the, the legal tender of El Salvador to Bitcoin. And now all of a sudden Bitcoin is down 50% or whatever, since he started this process and El Salvador, their bond prices are trading 30 or 40% less than what they were before. And the people probably are going to have something to say about that eventually. So there's all different causes and actions associated with these ideas. And then we're just starting to see the sort of tip of the iceberg. I think it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. 
I wouldn't be surprised if this is the the only this Sri Lankan episode is the only sort of they depose the prime minister or president or whatever in Sri Lanka as a result of this. I would be surprised if that's the only sort of consequence of this inflationary cycle in in food prices and all the other craziness that's taken place recently, like this El Salvadorian guy. I honestly don't even think that a lot of this is has played out at all. I mean, I think Ukraine being the breadbasket of the world and their you know crops not even they didn't have a, a planning cycle this this go around or at least a major one. And I think that we're in the developing world, we're going to see a lot more of stories like this, whether it's self-inflicted wounds like Sri Lanka or just by virtue of decreased export capacity because of uh, conflict in Ukraine. I think that this is what we saw in the early uh, 2010s with the rise of uh, the Middle Eastern Spring. Yeah. Yeah. Arab Spring. And uh, was was driven on by famine and, and by food crises. I think we're, you know, there's wouldn't be any surprise if we see something similar here. I agree 100%. So getting back to the the European, everybody's in Europe right now. I saw an interesting piece on Twitter from Le Figaro, which is a, a, a French newspaper. French hotel bookings are 21% above their 2019 levels for a new record high. And they're getting mid 80% occupancy this summer. It's crazy. So people are taking advantage of the low, the low euro. I don't know if there's been a, a renewing of, uh, and I haven't seen it because I haven't traveled to any big American cities, but I'd, I'd be curious to see if and when international tourism is going to return to the United States in a similar fashion. Why would it if the dollar is so strong, it's so expensive to travel here, which is also, I think GDP is a stupid measure for that particular reason, that one of the components of GDP is net exports. Well, when your currency is strong and nobody can buy your domestically produced items because the cost is so much greater than maybe somewhere it's it being produced somewhere else. Same thing goes for travel. We can easily travel to Europe because our, our currency is 25% stronger than it was last year, vice versa. Why would anybody want to travel to the United States when it's 25% more expensive when you just go to a comparative or substitute place somewhere else in the world? I mean, currencies will normalize over time. Uh, theoretically, at least, they'll go through cycles. I mean, obviously, the U.S. dollar, there was calls last year for replacing U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency and potentially uh, replacing it with one of the European currencies, whether euro or the pound or with the Chinese yuan or maybe even Bitcoin at some point. That, I think, narrative is completely out the window just because the dollar strength is really the only thing that's keeping the only real market that's other than other commodities that's up the only currency that's up relative to all other currencies is the u.s dollar right all right that's that's one positive i guess in the in the from being or one of the positives in terms of the state of affairs today for americans obviously we get paid in u.s dollars and everything is less expensive if you buy it internationally nowadays remember the conversation we we're having with uh santiago on the the Argentinian peso. And what he was saying is every time they get paid in Argentina, there's a few things that happen. Number one, they either immediately convert Argentinian pesos to US dollars. Number two, they convert it to cryptocurrency. Or number three, they buy assets with it, whether it's you know real estate stocks, bonds, et cetera, denominated in, in US dollars. Uh, it's amazing the benefit that Americans have that they don't have to think about that sort of action to take every time you get paid. Absolutely. Um, and and that whole Argentinian story is, I've been following that very closely 
uh, and, and keep in, t- in touch with Santi as well too, but their inflation right now is through the roof. It's like 60% uh, year over year, which is absolutely insane. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I saw that there are protests in, in Buenos Aires as well too, as part of the whole inflationary regime that's taking place nowadays. So it's just another one of the, you know, another part of this, the, the global story. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We're, we're super fortunate to be able to, you know, to live in a place where we get paid in the, the world's reserve currency and not have to, we've been going through obviously an inflationary cycle and it's, and it shocks me in terms of, you know, seeing the prices of goods and it's, it's affecting my spending behavior because, you know, I just, I personally will look at a, you know, when I'm at the grocery store or whatever, I'll say to myself that that's ridiculous and I'll make a different choice, but I can only imagine what it's like to, if you have that in a much more amplified setting, like in Argentina, where instead of it being 8% here, it's 60% there. And that it's been something that's been going on for generations. All right. Well, we're coming up on time and um, this is second podcast in a row that we've had without a guest and and we're going to welcome guests back next week. So uh, be on the lookout for that. But please, if you you like this episode or any of our episodes, share with your friends, give us a five-star review and comment and let us know if we can be doing anything differently. Appreciate you listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.